my name is Tony, and I was in a cult for over a decade. And my name is Lindsay, and my sister was in a cult for over a decade. And now I'm out. Lindsay and my family helped get me out, and we have created a podcast. Playing in Traffic. We interview survivors of the Wimscog. We cover topics of healing and topics of all things about cults. So tune in, like, subscribe, whatever all that means, and enjoy the process of deconstruction. Welcome to Playing in Traffic. This is our disclaimer song. This is our disclaimer song. It's our opinion. Don't sue us. Don't sue us. If you didn't want us to make a podcast about you, then you probably shouldn't have started a religion where you brainwashed people and separated them from your family, so it's kind of your fault. But don't sue us. Don't sue us. You know who you are, so don't do it. Don't sue us. Have you ever heard of Ruby Ridge? Ruby Ridge. Have you ever heard of Ruby Ridge, Lindsay? Uh, oh, I think so. Man, I remember um, little, little snippets of it growing up and hearing about it and hearing it um, referenced a lot. But, um, you know, we wanted to take some time to really investigate. Sorry, guys, dropped my lighter. We wanted to take some time to investigate it and um, and explore it with you guys. Today, we're going to talk about Ruby Ridge and Waco. Yeah. Last There's time we talked about Heaven's Gate and... I'm going into it not as heavy-hearted. Do you feel like that with these two? Yeah, these ones are a little different. These ones are also sad and serious. Oh. Um, but a little bit different. And today is very special because um, we actually interviewed. Uh, there's a lot of things about Ruby Ridge and Waco that we had a lot of questions about, like law enforcement questions that we have no experience and no idea about. And so I have a really good friend who is in law enforcement, who's a previous law enforcement. And um, we interviewed him and he answered a lot of our questions and gave us a lot of in insight into what happened in, in the 1990s. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear that interview. Yeah. So that will be after that'll be a separate episode that will like kind of attach to this one. Yeah. So stay tuned for that, guys. Yeah. So if we're not answering all your questions, it's probably because we answered them with Dustin. Yeah. Was super helpful and explained a lot of stuff to us. So for sure. Let's get into it, girl. So Ruby Ridge and Waco, uh, why are they important to us? Why are they important to this like story of cult and society? Ruby Ridge was a family dynamic. Waco was a religious cult dynamic. They were also like offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot of Seven Day Adventists. So yes. that's very interesting. We're going to talk about that. Um, but I think that as we're learning about cults and learning about narcissists, which we also talked about, Dustin, like it doesn't have to be a religion to be a cult. It could also be within a family, yeah. you know? So I think when we look at Ruby Ridge, we can see a lot of characteristics of a cult within the family and them also being vulnerable to cults that they were exposed to. So I think that's really interesting. Right. And, and also one of the things that was interesting is 
Ruby Ridge is sort of a spiral example that's used by Waco, by Heaven's Gate, by people still today of like, see what the government can do when they overreach and they want to take your guns away and they want to like have this take away your religious freedom. Yeah. So I think Ruby Ridge was sort of the most dramatic. Well, I mean, I say the most dramatic in our life. I think it was like a spark. It was a spark because, um, like, Ted Kaczynski mentioned it and um, David Koresh mentioned it. So all of these people were kind of inspired, kind of like how uh, people look at the Columbine shooters, you know. It's sort yeah. of like like that. People who ha- who are unstable use it um, for their beliefs. So it makes you wonder if there was no Ruby Ridge, would there have been, you know, X, Y, and Z? We don't know. Yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about. These historical events, historical events have meaning. Yeah. So we're going to understand about them today, guys. It's very interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay. So Ruby Ridge. Ruby Ridge was an 11-day siege on the Randy Weaver's house that ended up in tragedy. Ended up in tragedy. So the Weaver family, they were a very religious family. It was Randy Weaver was the dad. Vicki Weaver was the mom. And then they ended up having three daughters and a son. They had three daughters? They had three daughters and a son. Okay. And um, they were, they lived, I think, in Iowa at first. And they really believed in the Bible. I think they had very religious backgrounds, both of them growing up. And um, they started to get these really strong apocalyptic beliefs. And they wanted to get away from the government. They wanted to be free and they wanted to go prepare for the end of the world. So they moved to Idaho in 1983 and they moved to the mountain, which was known as Ruby Ridge. And I heard that they bought this whole area of land for like $5,000. And then they just, just little by little, just built this little cabin. And when you look at a picture of it, it's just very, I mean, they built it by themselves with their hands. So they were very like survivalist preparing for the end of the world, um, studying the Bible a lot. Did you did you see the name of her, um, Vicky's uh, Bible group that she started? I didn't. What was it? It's called ZOG. Z-O-G, huh. Zionist Organized Government. And it was an apocalyptic Bible study group that she organized. She started that in the 70s, like the late 70s, 1978. So she was really um, radical. It's hard to tell say that she was almost the leader. Yeah. Uh, Which is interesting. Um, We are finding a lot of female, um, strong female influences. You know, when you look at Heaven's Gate and T and Doe and uh, and even in this case, anyway, um, the female influence. There is kind of like the male is kind of the forefront of it, but there's always like mm-hmm. a woman right behind it. kind of Always like powerful, a very powerful woman. So, you know, we talk about this because we it's important to know their mindset before all this other shit breaks out. You know, like these were these people had very strong beliefs. And then when they moved to Idaho um, and Dustin's going to talk more about these things in depth. Um, they were surrounded by like-minded people, people who also had similar um, apocalyptic beliefs, similar religious beliefs, and also very strong white supremacist beliefs. So the Aryan Nation Brotherhood people, they lived very close to Ruby Ridge. And so Randy Weaver was seen several times going to their meetings. Yeah, and that kind of radical 
like that got more intense like in the 80s he went more more from like apocalyptic to like uh racist around the 80s um and so in in uh, around this time there was a group called the order they're uh, like a uh extremist terrorist group a national a white supremacist terrorist group so all of the um law enforcement is like we got to keep our eye on these people so in 1989 undercut undercover um informant they did they buy them from him or did they sell them to him? The sawed off shotguns. So the way that Dustin explains it when we go into his interview, he was explaining how the informant it's disputed. Did the did the informant ask him to do this illegal thing or was he already doing this illegal thing? And then he offered it to the informant. So he he sold the informant sawed off shotguns which is highly illegal. Yeah. Especially in the Aryan nations. Yeah. So yeah, thinking that there's this uh, extremist radical group and then this guy's out there selling sawed off shotguns. Right. Uh, So in June of 1990, the agents tell him that they'll drop all of his charges if he becomes an informant for the Aryan nation. So Mm -hmm. they're like, you can go be an informant for us and we'll drop your charges and you can just Isn't that considered blackmail? Is that allowed if it's a government? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay, it's like a it's like a plea deal. They do right. that. I, I understand. Time in movies and shit. I don't know. If it's yeah, okay. yeah. I understand. It just seems kind of fucked up. But it he is- refused, right? He was like, "Hell no. Yeah, I'm not gonna flip on these crazy ass people." And then he went and told them that the government right. was trying to get him to do that. So that yeah. was fucking weird. Right. That's a little icky. Anyways, so in December of that year, 1990, they indict him with firearms charges. And then in January, they arrest him on those charges and then release him on bail. And then they, they set- arrested him and Vicky both. Oh, they, they arrested both of them. And when they went to arrest them, it didn't go down easy then. Like yeah. they set up this whole thing on the side of the road to try to trick them and to get him out. And Vicky tried to get a gun. He tried to get a gun from the police. There's all these reports that when they first got arrested, that they were not going down easily. Is that why Vicky got arrested? Why was she involved? You know, um, or because she just was like probably because resisting. Oh, okay, but they were like, fucking crazy too. To arrest, they were going to just arrest him, right? The they plan was just to arrest her, I believe. Yeah, or just arrest him. Just arrest him. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, then they got released on bail. Yeah. And so then the court was like, okay, you got to come back in March for your court mm-hmm. date. They sent him a letter, but mm-hmm. really the court date was in February. So mm. he missed his court date. And so now now he's considered a fugitive who's like missed his court date. And so now right. the court's the one that fucked it up. Yeah. Right. And so missed the date. But he was because he had the wrong date. Yeah. He missed the date, but it was because he got the wrong date. But most people say he wasn't probably going to show up for court anyway. Yeah. Because he was like, F the government. I want to be free. I want to live on this mountain and do whatever I want. Now he has a warrant out for his arrest. Yeah. And they're like trying to figure out how to get to him up on his property. He's like hidden back in the woods. Um, This turns into like a 16 month standoff where they kind of stay held up on their cabin. Um, Vicky ends up having a baby there, like doesn't even leave to go to the hospital. The agents are like setting up surveillance throughout the woods. They're trying to like plan their next step. It's just this really slow 
long. You know, living out in that cabin, they had no running water. They had no electricity. That's why they had no telephone. They didn't have any of that. So the whole time they're just living off the land. And I actually watched an interview with the older daughter and she said it was the most amazing time of her life that living like that, just living off the land like that was so amazing. And they had, you know, their own little garden and everything. So from the perspective of a child, I could see that, you know, that that yeah. would be um, really fulfilling. Right before like something really tragic happening. To your home. Right, right, right. But the police didn't know what was there. You know, they didn't know, did, like Dustin explains later, did they have bombs? Did they have, you know, what kind of weapons did they have? They had no idea. Yeah. what was going on there so it was the weaver family there and then there was another friend there his name was um kevin harris i think kevin harris he was there yep yeah he was like a teenager and he moved in with them in the 80s and then became like a family friend so he's right. there living with them and they're, they're doing the surveillance yeah and they're seeing every single one of them walking around with weapons i think except for the little girls but like the older girl had weapons just constantly, they're always armed. They're always walking around armed and they're always ready for war, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the agents are like trying to figure out the best way to like get in there and arrest Randy without, um, you know, causing something tragic happening. So, anyways, so when was it? August 21st, 1992. Um, agents are doing their stakeout in the woods, leaving the regular trip. old day. Regular old day, they're coming down from the woods, and then the family dog sniffs them out, finds them. Starts barking. Different stories of who started first, but the dog gets shot, and they think it was the way for the agents to, like, get the dog away from them because they didn't want to be found out in the woods. Right. Um, so then a big gunfire storm happens, and 14-year-old hmm. son, Randy's son, Sammy, dies. Mm. Um, dog dies and an agent dies. Right. So they're all shot. There's just a shootout. Uh, one side, it, you know, the the law enforcement side says they started shooting first. The other side did. Kevin Harris was there with Sammy, so he goes back to the cabin and says law enforcement started it. And so now both sides are like, "Fuck you!" He just fucking killed somebody in my family, you know, on right. both so yeah so a deputy um well he was a marshal and so uh dustin's going to explain to us about the marshals um william francis um deegan i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that right but he died and so he died and so that pissed off the government the law enforcement you know and so right away they want to get the fbi involved and they're calling for backup but at the same time, Sammy Weaver died. This little boy died. And so they went back to get his body and take him up back up to their house. But the problem was, was that the law enforcement and all that and all that shootout, they didn't realize that Sammy had died. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. like the law enforcement knew that they had a casualty, but they didn't realize that Sammy had died. And I think that's important because that pissed randy weaver off like they had just killed his son oh yeah so that put him in like a state of like of more like fury and anger and ready to fight back to the government you know yeah. so that started a whole stand-in and a whole and that's the whole. that's when the 11 is that when the 11 day yeah. starts okay yeah so that's when 
This is yeah. after 16 months of them kind of just like living up there, trying to figure right. out. Now but then like- it all finally comes to a head. So then the Weavers, they take um, Sammy into their shed. And then the next day, so, you know, they're mourning. And they're like, oh, my God, our baby just died, you know, our son. You know, the, the whole thing was that they shot his dog. So that's why they say he retaliated and then shot the deputy. Anyway, they don't really know exactly what happened, you know. But um, anyway, the very next day, Dustin explains more how they get orders to shoot to kill. So they're allowed to shoot any adult that they see. Um, and they're just allowed to, to shoot them. So as they're going out to look at their at their boy, Sammy, um, they have snipers set up all around, you know, Ruby Ridge. And um, three of them are out. I think it's Randy, Kevin, and Vicky. They're outside of, of the house. And they hear something, you know, I think they heard a dog going off again or something. And then um, they all start running into the house. And Dustin explains this. And I'm so excited for you guys to hear his explanation because it cleared it up for me a lot. Anyway, so then they all go through the house and tragically um, the sniper shoots. And um, they're all three shot. Yeah. Randy is shot. Kevin is shot. They're wounded. But Vicky is shot in the head and she is killed. And that's on August 22nd. And the saddest part is. What? Oh, does she have her baby in her hands? She was holding her little infant, her baby in her hands when she was shot. The baby survived though, right? The baby survived. Mm -hmm. So all this happens and then they go back into the house and they shut in and Vicky has died. And then again, the problem is the government didn't realize the sniper, uh, the you know, the FBI, they didn't realize that Vicky had died. So the nego- so you know, they're still trying to get Randy out, but they don't realize now that Vicky is dead. His family members. Right. They realize that Sammy was dead. They realized that that second day before Vicky died, but now they don't know Vicky died. So I I was. Uh, reading and, and uh, watching some things and they said that the um, negotiators were outside calling to Vicky and they were saying Vicky come out Vicky we want to give your children some pancakes Vicky we have something for you and that was making Randy more angry because he thought that they were um, they were like like uh, teasing him mocking him yeah, like mocking him. He thought they knew that Vicky was dead, but but they didn't know. So because of all of this miscommunication, they were just adding fuel to the fire and making Randy more furious. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they're just making it worse. Yeah. Yeah. In, in my humble opinion, who am I? I have no fucking law enforcement experience, nothing, but... There was definitely a loss of communication, but see, they didn't have any electricity. So there was no way to communicate, to call, to speak with him, you know, and they didn't want to step out. Nobody wanted to come out of the house because as soon as they stepped out, you know, they were going to get shot. They thought that they were being hunted by the government. Yeah. Which they pretty much were. So, yeah. So then they stay in there for 11 days. Yeah. And then he comes out uh, August 31st and then um, he gets sentence to 18 months in jail right because they're so trying they, to figure out like they have to charge him on like the original charge 
Right. Okay. Well, after like 11 that. days, I just kind of want to explain what happened because they stayed in there for 11 days and she was, um, she was just bleeding on the floor for 11 days with her and they had no way to communicate with him, but they finally invited this one guy. I don't know if they invited him or he just kind of went, his name was Bo Greitz and he was just kind of this really extreme um, right wing quote unquote politician. And um, he was a former Green Beret. So he, and so was Randy Weaver. So that's why he went, he went there. He went to Ruby Ridge and he, he went to the front line and he was like, send me, he will listen to me. He knows me, let me go. And so he went up and that's when he realized Vicky was dead. And then that's when all the communication happened. And then that's, and then he was finally able over the days and over the time to bring him down. But during that time, like we were talking about earlier, the um, neighbors were supporting him. Yeah. You know, and giving him food. Um, they, the government had blocked off the entrance to Ruby Ridge. And then at the bottom, they had the media set up. So after, you know, the shootout, it became a national news story. Right. So they come out, they're like, fine, they surrender. He brings out his children and uh, he finally gets arrested. And so does Kevin Harris. They both get arrested and they both get charged. Yeah. Um, but he only, he does 18 months in prison and then he gets out. So I think he's still alive, isn't he? Isn't he, he still, is still alive? So he did, he did his time for the original charge of selling sawed off shotguns. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like the lesson here, kids, is don't sell off shotguns. Or, yeah, first of all, don't solve shotguns. Don't and get involved with the Aryan nations because they yeah. suck. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things. So, so many things. <laughs> in this, but, um, and then Kevin Harris, he ends up, you know, all of his charges are dropped. Um, with Dustin, we talk more about the sniper that shot Vicki Weaver because that was really interesting. 1995, they actually sued the government and they got 30, $3.1 million from the government. The Weaver family did. Yeah, for killing Vicki and Sammy. So right. they like countersued after they got out of jail. You kind of pointed on this before. That's why this is a tricky story because obviously you hear Randy Weaver's involved with the Aryan Nations. And so you're like, okay, obviously that guy's a bad dude. Mm-hmm. But then, like, you get into the details of the story and you're like, oh, it's so confusing because the government's actions, the law enforcement actions throughout this whole thing, you're just like, well, if I was Randy Reaver, I'd be fucking pissed, too, if they told me to be at court and then I missed my court date because they gave me the wrong day. And then they, you know, held me up in my house for 16 months and were, like, threatening to... And then shot my dog and my kid and my wife. And if you already, the okay, so the point is, if you already have these apocalyptic beliefs and you already believe the government is is being used by Satan to kill you and to go after you and to take away your religious freedoms, and then you look outside and you're surrounded by 400, you know, FBI agents, you know, because they set up camp and they had all these people and all these resources and tanks surrounding their property. I mean... Yeah. It, it just, it makes them, it reinforces their beliefs and it's so dangerous. Yeah. There's no, there's no like solution at that point. Like, right. He can't step outside. He has a shoot to kill order. They just shot right. him. Right. He's not going right. to out at that point. Right. So there's many, many, many things to be learned from this. And uh, we'll talk more with Dustin later. So you guys 
will really enjoy that part about this. Yeah. All right. And I, today we also want to talk about Waco. Did you have anything else you want to say about Ruby Ridge? I mean, there's so many things to say. If you guys have any questions, um, want to know more about it, let us know. Yeah. We'll do some more research. Yeah. Um, if you guys want to want to know more about this, uh, PBS has a really good documentary. It's um, it's their American Experience series, and it's about Ruby Ridge, and it's really really interesting. And um, Randy Weaver is still alive. And if you look on YouTube and uh, search a little bit, you can find some interviews with him. And it's pretty interesting. I mean, he's still a pretty um, eccentric um, guy who probably still has, you know, extremist beliefs. But the whole point is that this is America. And whether you agree or not agree, people are allowed to have their own opinions. Right. But then it's like, where does that line get drawn when it comes to taking over people's civil liberties and taking away their freedom, which we're going to talk about in the case of Waco, I think, more. Right. As a cult leader, manipulating people. And um, in that way, their freedom is taken away. And so that's illegal. Right. That's illegal. <laughs> But they're being they're being manipulated into that situation. So it's very confusing to me. Yeah, I think this is a good case of there is no black and white good and evil. Right. Like Brandy that's the whole point. Shitty things. The government did shitty things. Yeah. And at the end, they're both to blame. And like that's complicated when you just want to pick one side and be on a side. Because like reality is not really like. Oh, this is right and this is wrong. Exactly. It's complicated. I mean, that's not, what I want to do with this podcast. Nothing is, is black and white. Nothing is right and wrong. And that is a really good lesson today because that's what's happening to us right now. One way is right, one way is wrong, you know, with politics, with religion, with everything. It's so infuriating and it's it's it shouldn't be like that. You guys, let's talk about Waco. I Waco think people, and, and Hunky David Koresh. Ew, uh, don't call him Hunky. <laughs> really? I don't know. I can't decide. I thought there were like moments when you watch videos of him where I'm like, yeah, I could see it. And then, yeah. and then they get like closer to like, oh, never mind. Well, then you hear his crazy, crazy I could rhetoric. See his, um, I could see his appeal. A charisma? Charisma. He's got like a charisma about him where I'm like, I don't know if I was like a younger Kind of like Jim Jones, probably. Jim Jones was sort of like, you know. Charismatic. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny because, okay, first of all, I want to recommend, um, I watched it on Netflix, but I couldn't find it. I watched it a while ago. It's called Waco. And t um, Is it that Taylor, Taylor Kitsch plays, um, Kate plays David Koresh. Uh, I, Paramount put it out in uh, 2018. Okay, if anybody has ever watched Friday Night Lights, it's Tim Riggins from Friday Night Lights, and he's a total cutie. That's and he's the one that plays David Koresh. I think that's actually where my my that's probably where I got the like. Eh, he's kind of actually attractive. He's I think brilliant. That's the actor that played him. I don't think it's actually the real David. Koresh. He was brilliant. Not David Koresh was brilliant, but he was brilliant in that. So I recommend you guys watch that because what I liked about that that show was that it showed it from inside the cult perspective um 
when you look up things about Waco, it's a lot about, you know, what the police force did. It's a lot about like from the outside perspective, what the media did, da, 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 da. But this show really showed from inside and like how they kind of lived and how, you know, they did their Bible studies and how they ate together and, you know, they lived together as a family. And that was really uh, something that I connected with because it was very similar to how we lived. And his Bible studies were very similar sort of to the way that we would do them. Um, Because they're stemmed really from the same Right. So David Koresh um, was actually kicked out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church also, just like Ansan Hong was. <laughs> he was also expelled from the Seventh-day Adventist Church because of his um, very um, strong beliefs uh, that were against. Uh, he had conflicts with them. He, his, his original name was Vernon Wayne Howell, and he was born in 1959 in Houston. And um, I think he grew up and attended SCA and, you know, until he was out of high school. And then after that, he was kicked out. And then in the 1980s, he moved um, to Waco around that area. And he joined a group called the Branch Davidians. You guys, there's a whole long story. Um, he ended up like getting involved with the leaders, um, daughter and everything and then he actually ended up taking over the compound so they had this compound they called it mount carmel mount carmel c-a-r-m-e-l and it was just a little community where they all lived together like we've learned from all the other cults that communal living and they believed in the end times you guys they had farming they built like a really prosperous city and they lived there together and they had like a sewer system, water system. And one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, they had like their own little media, you know, that they would communicate with each other. Um, I think it was like a little paper or something that they would communicate with each other. Uh, like their own little press. Are they all in Waco? Yeah. So this is like on the This is Yeah. They call it Waco, but it wasn't like in Waco. It's sort of outside of Waco. So let's oh. just make all that clear. Oh. Yeah. But it's and, all the same compound. Like they had their own press, like within the little. Yes. Like, yes. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. And this is actually in the 1930s. So this is like okay. a this is like when it originally started. So this is before David Koresh was there. And yeah. then they built a new. Then they bought a new property in 1957, and it was 941 acres. So massive, <laughs> I think. That's pretty massive. Yeah. Out in the middle of nowhere. It, yeah. And, it's called a compound, you know, and then this one they called new, new Mount Carmel, new Mount Carmel. And then, okay. So I thought that this was really interesting. They called all their members from all over in 1959 in April, 2020, April 22nd, 1959. They called them all to come to the new compound to keep the Passover. Ooh. So they, I know. So they also kept the Passover and they were like really, um, serious about keeping quote unquote God's feast. So all the people all over the country came, sold their houses, sold their property, and they all came to Waco because guess what was going to happen? The end of the world. So oh, they all right. had to come and prepare, of course. Same thing, waiting for God's sign, waiting for the, the end of the world. That's and kind of a Seventh-day Adventist like thing, right? Yeah, for sure. That's kind of like their, their, like their uh, connection was that they all believe in like the end times. 
Yeah. So they all came here. They moved and then nothing happened. So then um, some guy came out and he said, I'm the new leader. His name was uh, Ben Roden. And he said, I'm the new leader. And then when he died, there was a new leader, Lois Roden. And and she was actually his wife and she took over. And then she made it kind of all about women's rights and and like that. And then um, these things happened. And then um, George Roden, after she died, George Roden became the leader and he was their son. But see, George and Vernon. Okay, Vernon is Dave Koresh. Remember, that's his real name. Yeah. They they were arguing and they were they were fighting. And then anyway, all these things happen. Koresh gets kicked out of it because they were sick of him. And um, at this time, you guys, Koresh is starting to like um, have sex with underage girls and sort of like do all these strange things. And he's teaching his own Bible studies. And then he comes back to Mount Carmel. What year was that? Uh, he came back to Mount Carmel uh, late 80s and he took it over by force and there was a gunfight and he took it over. And then the other guy, he was really uh, corrupt, like the original, you know, the leader, George Roden. Yeah. And he had all these like tax things. So he ended up in jail Oh. So because he was in jail. So um, David was Hal, like, uh-huh. yep, Hal Vernon took it over. And at that time, he changed his name to David Koresh in 1990. 1990? Wow. Because he was, he called himself David, like the lineage of David, which was also something that we studied a lot about, was about, you know, second coming Christ was coming as David, as the prophetical King David. And in Revelation, it talks about how, um, the seven seals would be opened by David, by the root of David. And An Sang Hong, they claim An Sang Hong in our church, you know, was the root of David. Well, David Koresh also claimed that he was the root of David and that he could unseal the seven seals. And so they would have day long Bible study. So when David Koresh took over Mount Carmel, it was like it was over from there. It got very apocalyptic, very serious. That's when they started um, gathering weapons. Did a lot of people leave at that point? Like, was there a split in the community? Were they like, okay, I'm not following this guy? Or did, do, do you know, or did a lot of people I, stay? I think, I think several people left um, during those different, because there were several different splits, you know, like when the original leader died and then his wife took over. So I think throughout all those times, you know, things, people were coming in and out. But um, when David Koresh came, then it became very serious. And so I think if if you didn't want to follow him, then you were definitely, you know, not allowed to stay there. You either believed him and you followed him or you were gone because he was clearly the leader from that point, you know. And so he, um, he sort of started teaching them that they were going to be the army of God and he was the Messiah and all children should come from the Messiah literally. So, which meant that he would have free reign. Eventually uh, he would, he would come to have free reign over whichever women he would want and he would impregnate them so that those children would be, you know, from his lineage that was really important to him to carry out his, you know, mission or whatever. And so, you know, they also had, they called them like spiritual weddings. And um, he's claimed to have had more than a dozen children of his own with several different women in there. 
So like I said, when I saw um, the way they did their Bible studies, their continuous, continuous from morning to night Bible studies, um, I thought that that was really interesting. And there were very smart uh, people that were in that compound uh, with David Koresh. You know, there were engineers and and also people from London. Did you know that there are people from London that were in there that were in in Waco when that happened? And um, so anyway, he became very, very apocalyptic and very serious. And so. So. An undercover agent is able to infiltrate inside of Waco, inside of the compound. And oh, um, it, like he's a member? Yeah. Okay. And um, so he kind of comes in and he's able to see what's going on. They're able to also do a little bit of surveillance. And that's when they realize that there is sexual abuse happening, that there is abuse happening to children and that they're stockpiling weapons. So then the ATF gets involved, uh, the alcohol, tobacco and firearms get involved, um, the FBI gets involved and they realize that they have a really serious problem and that this man is very dangerous and they, you know, they don't know what he's going to do. Yeah, they're probably just like he's stockpiling shit for a war. Nobody knows if he's going to start it or what's going to happen. February 28th, 1993. The ATF goes to the compound to um, issue a warrant because they want to see what's going on. Uh, they believe that they have enough information to go inside and see, you know, what kind of weapons, because they have information that there are illegal weapons in there and that there is abuse going on. So over a hundred agents surround the compound and go to issue this warrant. And we're going to talk to Dustin about sort of the tactical reason about why so much force was used, because this is a very pivotal moment um, in Waco. And just remember, this is 1993. So Ruby Ridge had just happened. Just happened. Like a year, right? Like the spring before this. Right. So this just happened. The government's under a lot of scrutiny. They want to make sure they get this right. Um, they also know that they are dangerous and that they have weapons. So I also want us to consider before we move on, if you are David Koresh and you are in his um, compound, you know, if you are watching a hundred agents come towards you, already believing that this is how you are going to end, that this is how the world is going to end, that the government is going to come and kill you. This is what they had been taught for years and years and been indoctrinated. And now they're looking out the windows and then the government is coming to them. I just want everybody to have a clear understanding of what that might've been like for them and how scary that might've been for them and how much this um, just solidified their teaching. Solidified their belief that yes, this is true. David Koresh is the Messiah. He had warned us that this is going to happen and we need to stand our ground and we need to fight back. They had been told that they need to fight back. You know this like firsthand. I mean, anytime anything happened in the news that, that your church maybe had hinted at with North Korea, it was just confirmation to you guys all the time that you were getting closer and closer 
And the more that you persecute them, the more they believe it's true. So this is a very extreme case and a very tragic case. But I I don't want people to just brush um, these cult members off as just crazy. They were not crazy. They were intelligent. They were, you know, they were normal people, but they were also um, under... you know, heavily influenced under this um, narcissistic leader. Okay. Anyway, back to the story. So then they go to issue the 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 warrant, and um, shit just hit the fan. As soon as they got to the door, um, the Branch Davidians started um, shooting them from inside the door. They just started firing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rounds, and um, 17 agents were wounded and four were killed in that oh, initial. Sure. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's- and several, several uh, Branch Davidians were also killed. Um, I don't know if they have an exact number of how many were killed Branch Davidians in that initial shootout because it was they were just getting shot out. just And they had no communications. They're out in the middle of nowhere in this compound. You know, I don't think they were. Yeah, they had, you know, so many agents, but I don't think they were really expecting, you know, a straight out shootout. And you guys can, you know, look and see videos of all this happening. It's very sad. And so from that moment begins the standoff. So so that initial um, shootout happens and the agents get away and David Koresh does not come out and the people do not come out. And they just, you know, stand in. And day after day, the media, the media is there. Um, the FBI is there. Negotiators are there. Everybody is there. And every day, they're telling David Koresh and his people, come out, come out, come out. And Dustin's going to go into more detail about, you know, what, you know, kind of the mindset of the FBI and the negotiators at that time. Um, so during that time from February 28th, you guys, for 51 days, 51 freaking days. Imagine your two-week quarantine when COVID first came. Yeah. Think about how long that first two weeks where we all thought we were just going to stay home for two weeks and then we'd be done. Right. Now, now make that 51 days of not... Tense, right? Intense negotiations. So the media doesn't know what's going to happen every single day, you know, and knowing that they're in there with all these weapons, you know, is really scary. And like, Um, and yeah, not knowing the extent of them. Right. So um, during that time, several children were released. They were having negotiations back and forth with David Koresh. But during that time, he was just going crazy. And so he he was holed up inside and he was waiting for visions from God. And he actually uh, wrote this whole manuscript and his whole revelation that he had during that time of uh, what was going to happen and the end of the world and all these things. And, and I read some of it. You guys can go online and you can read some of it. And it's very fascinating to see into his mind. Um, During that time, he was, Um, having communication with outside media and he was recording his sermons and then the outside media would play it because they were just so desperate to do anything to get any kind of communication with him to get, you know, to get him and especially the children outside of the compound and to get them into safety. Uh, But he was just, he kind of feel like that was his way. Like this was all kind of like prophesized, like, this is how he was going to preach to the whole world. Right. You now can hear national plat. He's having this international platform now of like. Exactly. People are listening. Going all over the whole world. 
because we're being held up at this compound. Everybody's eyes are on us. Right. People were listening. And um, so he was waiting instructions and the FBI, they're not liking that. You know, they're wanting to move in. They're wanting to finish this. I mean, this is embarrassing. This is so embarrassing that they're not able to go in and get this guy. So like I said, Destin, will talk more about that uh, later. So after 51 days, that's it. The government decides they have had enough. 6.30 a.m., April 19th, first thing in the morning, they take their armored vehicles and they smash the crap out of the compound, you guys. They took their armored cars and that whole morning from about 6.30 a.m. till about 10.30 a.m., they ram the um, front of the compound all around the compound they ram it about 10 to 11 times and they start to throw tear gas in uh, because they are just trying to get these people out to rescue them to get them away from this um, crazy cult leader they say about nine people come out they escape um, but after ramming it they're expecting the people to come out is that when so did they Oh, this is like, uh, nobody knows if the fire started. Yeah, so then at 12.10. Okay, 12.10. Flames start flying out of the windows. Okay. And they realize that there's been a fire, that a fire has been set. And um, nobody knows where the fire came from, how the fire was started, or who started the fire, but a fire is set and... um, And immediately the compound goes up in flames. And because the the government had rammed all those holes through the compound, the fires just take over the compound so quickly. And so the government stands back. All the agents are standing back and they're waiting for the people to run out. This is the moment they've been waiting for. They're waiting. All these people are going to come out. They're going to rescue. They're ready to save them. They're ready. They have all the all the stuff ready, you guys. And totally around nine people escape. <sighs> okay. In the show, and I don't know how mm-hmm. accurate this is or if this was mm-hmm. done for dramatic effect, mm-hmm. but in the show, they have all of the women and children like hiding in a bunker in the basement Mm -hmm. and then they get trapped down there when the fire starts and then the tear gas is like choking them and so in the series all of the women and children are being gassed out by the fire and the tear gas in the basement so that's what that's what they show it as um in the dramatic series and i don't know if that's true or not i don't know if that's where they ended up finding them or if they even found bodies because it was all burned by that point yeah yeah also all of that was pretty accurate yeah um, because they had put the children and women away at, to protect them yeah but then when the fire happened they were trapped and maybe when they bulldozed through they right. got right. down there right. like i don't know right so many things happened and nobody came out um because they believed that that was the way that they were supposed to die that they were supposed to go um, they had been indoctrinated, you know, for so long by David Koresh. And I'm sure many were were held against their will in there. And I'm sure many wanted to escape. But I don't know how many, you know, stayed because they just believed that. And imagine that mindset. Like, do you think he's going to let you just walk out of there? He's probably right. like, if you leave, I'm going to kill you. 
I don't right. know. That's me just making that up. But but if they really believe that he was the Messiah and like they were going to go down with him, then, you know, but still the children. I mean, that was that was really, really the saddest part. And there were also pregnant women there. How and many? So, do you know how many? Final death count was 76 Branch Davidians, Damn. including 25 children, two pregnant women and David Koresh. Um, and then the total death from the um, from the agents that initial time, there were four agents that were killed in that initial, which really, you know, made them so angry. I think, too, once law enforcement is killed. Right. I think the people on the other side are like, we're not getting out of this, which is exactly what happened at Ruby Ridge. Yeah. yeah and I think. Probably in this case, too. I'm sure once David Koresh found out that agents were killed, he was just like, we're fucked. So that is how a cult can end up deadly, you guys. Really And quick. extreme beliefs. Yeah. Extreme beliefs. And so, um, yeah. So we're going to go into more detail about the tactics and uh, some of the more... Um, more details about what happened uh, with Dustin and he's going to talk a little bit about his podcast and that's going to be really interesting. So I really hope you guys enjoy that. Yay. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, I have a bunch of stuff. Oh, we forgot to say in the beginning that we got another country. Oh, South Africa. We see you. We see you, South Africa. Yes. And you guys, we are very excited. There is a website. It's called Examining WMSCOG. Yes. Let me make sure that I tell you guys. Well, we'll put the links in at the bottom. How's that? Yeah. We we put the link in on our season finale of season one. We had the link for the examining site on there. Oh, perfect. So you guys yeah. already so know, we'll, I'm sure. We'll probably, we'll put it on again now that it's been updated. I'm but, sure you guys are familiar with the site, but um, we were able to have our podcast put onto that site. So it was really exciting for us. Yeah. Because it's going to be able to reach more, more people who, um, might be searching for some of this information and we are happy to provide it here for you guys. Seventh day Adventist. I think that's fascinating. When I learned that I was, I think I like audibly gasped, uh, gasped about um, Waco. Yeah. Being a seventh day Adventist. Yeah. Uh, it's not that they were seventh day Adventist, but they were an offshoot of the seventh day Adventist. So like an offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot, you know, like a cult from the seventh day Adventist, but you know, they had like, they kept, they believed in the Sabbath day and they believed in the feast and they believed in 144,000 and they believed in the seals and revelation and all of that is similar to some of the Bible teachings that I was yeah. in. And so, um, you know, I really felt a lot of compassion for those people inside of the compound. And I really feel uh, like so heavy about a lot of the abuse that was happening there, you know, um, because the people were probably allowing the abuse to happen willingly because they believe that he was their savior and he was using the Bible to justify his sexual assault and his, um, his abuse of power. And that's just so, so traumatizing. And I can understand how that can happen. So, um, it's so sad. Um, one other side thing on prime mm. video, there's a documentary series about a place called Gloriaville. Mm, I haven't watched that yet. I'm going to check it out. And it's so interesting. They're very radical Christians, like Puritans almost. They remind me of like Pilgrim or um, mm. what are they? Amish people. Mm -hmm. They live just like all in this community. 
and it looks minus the doctrine of like the the men are like in charge of the women. The mm. men choose their bride, and they don't really get a choice. Mm. Whoever chooses them is like God's will. Blah blah. Like obviously blah, that blah blah blah. Like, All the important blah, things. Blah, blah. Yeah. But the like actual living of it, I'm like, this looks so freaking cool. If that was like a hippie commune. Besides the women abuse, then uh, it, then it's all fine. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I haven't watched it. There are different levels of, um, you know, control. And I don't know. It's interesting. There's definitely a reason that people want to believe and join these cults. I mean, cult. These these organizations, these um, communities have something to offer to people that they're searching for. And that's how why they join it in the first place. You know, yeah. there's something to be said about communal living and and waking up together and making breakfast together. And, you know, always having um, people around you that that are pleasant and that you laugh with and and uh, share experiences with. I mean, there's a reason why people are drawn to that. So there is, but it's unrealistic to be like sustainable because personalities are going to clash. I mean, you can have four children and one out of the four children are going to not be into that lifestyle. They're going to. And the problem is when you get a cult leader, when you get that narcissistic abusive leader, right? Like I'm the boss. And if you're not listening to me, then I'm going to punish you. Right. Um, All right, girl. What else do you want to say? We're still reading burnout. Yeah, and we are going to um, talk about it in our uh, next next upcoming episode, you guys. So finish it up. I'm about halfway through. And we have some critical um, reviews, so, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, uh, I'm enjoying it, and there's parts of it that I'm not enjoying, so we're going to talk about it all. Stay tuned for Dustin, guys. Yeah. Boom, baby. Boom. Boom.